So it's okay to begin recording. And we extend a warm welcome to folks listening and watching from wherever you are, and especially from Sangas in Madison, England, Switzerland, and Alpine, Texas, and our dear friends in Hawaii and Chicago. So uh, today, let's just fix this a little bit. Um, today, today I want to talk about the Liberation Project. So there's a lot of discussion, of course, at this time of the year around freedom and our conventional uh, concepts of freedom. So our conce concepts really include this idea of choice, that is, I get to choose, and control, and no one can tell me what to do. So those are our uh, conventional notions, and also decisions. Um, and we remember um, George Bush famously saying, I'm the decider. So we have this idea that um, having freedom means the, being uh, able to make decisions. And it's, uh, uh, it includes a freedom from whatever is undesired and a freedom to think, say, or do whatever I want. Uh, it also includes a little sense of uh, defiance, I think, of the wishes of others, of convention, of rules, of expectations, uh, as we have in our history from the uh, colonists defying the British, right? So there's a kind of aspect of it, I think, uh, is kind of like a toddler. Um, that is, uh, there's an aspect of conventional ideas of freedom that's sort of driven by impulses and moment-to-moment -moment, uh, impulses. We don't think a toddler is bad, but a toddler is not a grown-up. And then there's also a sense that comes uh, to, you know, from the idea of thinking of uh, like a teenager, uh, which is uh, being driven to self-expression and self-rule autonomy, experimentation, sometimes dangerous, um, and discovering their power. And again, we don't think teenagers are bad, but a teenager is not a grown-up. We kind of live in an adolescent society, as it turns out. So it's hard to see the appeal of something like Zen monastic training. Um, so our Zen training is about relinquishment of individual choice and individual control. The schedule's entirely determined. <laughs> in my monastic training, uh, the wake-up bell is at 3.50 a.m. and we're in the Zendo by 4.20. Uh, work is assigned. Typically, it's both menial and hard. Uh, clothing, you wear robes like everybody else. You're not, you don't have any choice there. Even your body, your head is shaven, there are bathing days, uh, your comportment is determined. Uh, in the Zendo, there's bowing, posture, and movement is all constrained and prescribed. Um, meals are, and outside the Zendo, you're moving in the monastery in uh, pretty much determined ways also. The meals are plain and simple at precise schedules, not necessarily what you would choose, not necessarily when you would want to eat. Uh, meditation, there are requirements for zazen and instructions from the teacher and uh, also reporting into the teacher about your meditation practice. Uh, there's study, you study what you're asked to study. Uh, technology and social media, no. Uh, coordination with others, you're in shared living spaces, you're in shared meditation spaces. I was actually in a three-sided cubicle, so no privacy there. Um, you're coordinating your activities, your work, and even your free time is with other monastics. So you have a lot of common experiences. <clears throat> 
So you have to wonder how free is this? Why would anyone want to do it? But somehow people do. So I want to say a little bit more about uh, our ideas of freedom because they seem to devolve around central concepts of I, me, and mine. So I, I can go where I want to, I can do what I please, I can say whatever I want to, I can have whatever I want. That's the I part of it. Um, me, um, I am who I am. For example, I'm white, I'm a woman, I'm retired, I'm a professor, I'm a Zen priest, I'm an Austinite, but not a Texan. It's sort of like being spiritual, but not religious, right? Um, I have my history, my story, my traumatic childhood, my education, my marriage. Um, I get to be who I want to be. Um, no one tells me what to do or how to behave. I have my bundle of conditioning, my preferences, my requirements and expectations. These are all how I, I understand me. My requirements and expectations of myself, of others, of the world. I have my worries, my grief, my likes and dislikes, my difficulties and troubles, my sorrows and my traumas. <clears throat> and then there's mine. These are the things that belong to me. My house, my car, my books, my clothes, my dishes, my groceries, my physical body, not quite as controllable as I would like, and still aging. <clears throat> my family, uh, although they seem to do as they please also. Uh, my work, my judgments of myself, of others, of the world, my spiritual path. Uh, these are the things that belong to me my mistakes, my grievances, my opinions, my parts, my Buddha nature. All of this, all of the clinging to I, me, and mine is a source of suffering. When we talk about liberation in Zen, we're not really talking about freedom in any of these conventional ways. And um, I think this is puzzling for people. So I wanna talk a little bit about some of what it is uh, first of all, it's a release from I, me, and mine, and from all of the protections we have to erect to consolidate and to, uh, and to ensure this, the continuity of I, me, and mine. It's a release from conditioning, which is a form of enslavement. So it doesn't mean that your conditioning goes away, but it no longer confines you. Uh, when we work with our conditioning, we're working actually to make it more transparent, not to get rid of it, so that we can see through it to what lies beyond it. It's a release from requirements of myself, of others, and of the world. So we always have these kind of subtle requirements that, um, uh, that things don't meet our, our expectations, or our needs, or what we want. And that reveals those requirements that everyone on the road should, uh, should let me have free access to as fast as I wanna go, as slow as I wanna go, stopping when I feel like stopping. We can see the little bits of distress that we create for ourselves through our requirements. Um, it's released from agitation, our agitation uh, around our need to fix things that we perceive are wrong um, or to avoid what I don't like or to grasp or cling to what I do want. Um, it's also released from the opposite of that, which is numbing out in all the ways that we have now to do that. 
uh, net surfing, binge watching, drinking, overeating, shopping, even meditation can be used as a way of numbing ourselves out. So we have to be mindful of that uh, abuse of our meditation practice, right? It's a release from goals, uh, from outcomes, from achievement, from ambition and striving and from management. This is really antithetical to everything that culture is teaching about productivity, about setting goals, about meeting goals, about tracking goals, about metrics that show whether you're meeting your goals, um, setting goals for other people who work for you. Um, and so it's interesting how um, punitive the whole concept of goals actually is. We're forever not there, right? We're forever not yet reaching our goal. We're forever setting new goals when it looks like we might reach our goal. And we're forever organizing ourselves uh, in the service of these goals, which are ever elusive and ever far away. So there's a strain built into the whole notion of goals. And of course, this always troubled my students when I would talk about this in my Zen rhetoric classes, because they were very goal-oriented and they had been trained to be quite goal-oriented. And they had no concept that you could be wholehearted and energetic without being attached to an outcome or a goal. That really didn't, that, that didn't make any sense to them. They couldn't really understand, how could you be wholehearted? And they, they argued fiercely that desire was necessary in order for there to be any human progress, in order for anything to get done, um, in order for them to make their way through school. So uh, it was hard for me to convince them that the wholehearted love of learning would carry them in ways that being attached to a goal would never serve them. So we uh, focused more, you know, I focused a lot more attention with helping them understand the ways in which you can be vigorous and energetic without being attached to a goal, which is going to cause you suffering and other people. And it's also a release from the hindrances. And we're familiar with these hindrances from Buddhist teachings. Um, <clears throat> the hindrances of self-desire, which we can sense desire, which we can see in our uh, rampant consumerism uh, and uh, a sort of materialistic culture. Uh, uh, other hindrances include anger and ill will, which is our rage at the world. Why is it like this? Why isn't it the way I want it to be? Why are these people behaving like this? Why are these people such buttheads, you know? This is kind of our, our ongoing uh, quarrel with the world, right, is uh, fueled by this, this anger. And then sloth and torpor, which is the flip side of that coin, um, where we become mindless and careless and we, uh, we just grab something to eat from the drive-thru or we just, uh, uh, we just feel sluggish and dull and we don't exercise our minds. So we sort of give in to our, uh, our tendencies and impulses. And then restlessness and worry, which serve nothing, but which do keep us agitated. Uh, and, uh, and finally, doubt. Once we sort of release our doubt, we're just sort of settle down in this path and realize, oh, this is where I am. This is exactly where I am. And there's much to learn about that, and there's a lot to be curious about. Um, so, uh, so doubt is um, considered a hindrance when it's disabling. It's not a hindrance when it's a part of inquiry, when it's a part of our curiosity. When we say, I'm not so sure I, I believe that. I wonder uh, if there's some other way to think about that. 
So that leads to also another thing that uh, is part of this liberation project is uh, accepting not knowing, which drops us into wonder and awe and a, some kind of acceptance of things as they are and a kind of openness to possibility and potential. Because as soon as we know, we've sort of shut down the potential for openness, for uh, new possibilities. And then this, uh, also this sense of non-striving, not striving to be or to do or to fix anything. So <clears throat> this liberation project has some priorities. Uh, the priorities are this sense of spaciousness and a kind of intimacy that's without barriers and that intimacy is with all things, a kind of appreciation that opens up as soon as we drop our requirements and our demands of the world and we begin to recognize all that there is to appreciate. Uh, another priority is awareness. We want to be awake in this life. Uh, we want this awareness that gives us a sense of the fullness of life and a 360 degree view. So when I was um, still teaching on campus, I, uh, I, I told my students I, I don't have a television set and I haven't had a television set for you know, 20 years. And, they, and I could hear an audible gasp in the, in the, uh, in the classroom when it's, and, they, and they were so confused, you know, and I said, well, you know, you should try it. You should try just like turn off a screen and go outdoors. Whether it's your phone or your computer or your tablet or your, com or your TV, just turn it off and go outdoors. And afterwards they write in their uh, learning records how they, they tried it. I tried what Professor Syverson said to try and it was amazing. I said, you have a 360 degree immersive experience with all the senses activated. So when you're just sitting looking at a piece of glass with a picture behind it, you don't have that immersive uh, experience. So, uh, so that is part of that uh, open awareness that we, uh, that we realize in this liberation. Uh, we also begin to um, recognize and foster skillful means for realizing the path and for the liberation of beings. So I think about the um, Dalai Lama's priority saying, um, my religion is kindness. Uh, and um, Uman saying, uh, enlightenment is an appropriate response. So our, our priorities become then cultivating the paramitas, the six paramitas of generosity and morality and patience and ener energy and vigor, concentration and wisdom. So when you think about that, you think, well, what is true liberation worth to you? What would you release? What would you include? What would you take up? So liberated beings align uh, with these priorities for all of their choices, all of their decisions, all of their thought, all of their speech, and all of their actions. They just bring their lives into alignment with their priorities and their aspirations and intentions. So I had a little um, activity for us. I know you really, um, you really uh, identify me with these little activities. So 
This involves doing a little bit of exploring in writing, so you need to get some writing tools if you don't have writing tools, some paper and some pencil. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know yet. I can't quite tell if everybody's got something to write with, but uh, hopefully you do. So we'll do a little bit of exploring. Um, and uh, it's, it comes out of a quote from John Ruskin, the 19th century philosopher, who famously said, no man was ever so free as a fish. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but we can do a little bit of exploring. And uh, what I'd like you to do is just get mindful for a moment and recall a time when you felt most free any time in your life, any time at all. Sometime when you felt most free. And think about how old were you? Where were you and what were you doing? So try to recall as many details as you can about that experience. You might recall a sky filled with clouds or what you were wearing or who else was there, what was said or what you were doing. As you recall that time, what happens to your body? And how does it feel inside? So write a little brief description of that experience. And just take a few moments, or maybe about five minutes, and write as much as you can recall about that experience when you felt most free. Yes, definitely. Um, Sandra? Yes, thank, um, thank you for the exercise. Really was very, very helpful. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you a question because one thing that I was talking with the ladies that I was sharing with is, is uh, one thing when you are in that dukkha, in that moment, suffering, the meta, you know, the meta phrases, the loving kindness, uh -huh. it's helpful. And so, you can be in that freedom, liberation, that can help. Is anything else that besides the, the meta, the uh, loving kindness can help you when you are in that? When you, you mean when you're in, um, when you're bound up in Dukkha? Yes, when you're bound up in Dukkha. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's another good opportunity for the Brahma Vihara practice of radiating um, kindness and radiating a compassion and radiating empathetic joy and radiating um, equanimity, but you might need to first radiate radiate it toward yourself, and you must you might need to recall instances when you were the recipient of those qualities, those Brahma Viharas. I think those things are helpful. Um, I also think it can be helpful when you're in the sort of pit of suffering um, to do the simple steps of the Anapanasati Sutta, the 16 steps, mm -hmm. um, especially if you have anxiety, because that uh, mindfulness of breathing settles the anxiety mm -hmm. and uh, begins to focus your energy. So, uh, and then uh, drops you into mindfulness of impermanence, mindfulness of dispassion, mindfulness of cessation, everything that's arising will cease. 
and uh, mindfulness of um, letting go. So those things can be helpful, I think, when people are struggling in various ways. Yeah, sometimes um, it's not so helpful to just sit in shikantaza and open awareness because you're too rattled by what you're going through or there's too much uh, background stress. <clears throat> and, uh, and you can just get more agitated or you can just get more depressed if you don't have some tools to work with. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Those are the things that I would recommend anyway. <clears throat> Those 16 steps of the Anapana Sati Sutta are potent if you do them for three breaths for each step, for example. It's, it's really powerful. So, helpful. Hank? Yes? Uh, I might add, too, that in, um, I found it helpful for me um, that if, if one um, does a, the practice of thinking of your own ancestors or the people that, who have helped you along uh -huh. during your lifetime and have those people, you know, and imagine them being there with you and feeling... Yeah. Yeah. The, the equanimity or the sympathetic joy that they have had for you and that they have for you. Yes. Um, the loving kindness and the compassion. So, so that can be a good um, Absolutely. You know, a source of, of feeling yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you got somebody there on your side. You got some folks <laughs> there that are there with you. Yeah. And if you can't think of anybody else, the Buddhas and the ancestors will sit with you. Uh, and if you um, if you invoke the Buddhas and the ancestors, they can uh, they can support you and assist you. Yeah. So this is great. Um, I think it's I wanted people to hold in mind the the potential for this kind of absolute liberation. Uh, sometimes I think we forget in our sort of daily lives, and we get bound up in various uh, struggles on the public stage or uh, in our own minds, and we forget the potential for real liberation. Uh, and that, uh, that may mean some changes, but it may be that you're able to just simply settle down in the life you're in with that liberatory potential. So, uh, so that's, the, that's why we sit, really, is to get connected to that which is totally free within us and around us. So in, in my group, um, people mostly described um, moments they were in nature uh, in one way or another. So that connection with nature is very important for us to have this sense of liberatory potential, I think. Yeah, and to feel um, deeply grounded. Anything else? Anyone? I'm, I'm trying to see if uh, people have hands up. <laughs> I don't see anyone with, oh, yeah. Kim does. Kim, yeah, there we go. Uh, one, of, one of my times was when I was actually driving down the street and thinking that my whole life was going to be changed and everything was going to be good. And I started whistling and then I re realized that whenever I caught myself whistling, I would be really happy and I haven't whistled for a long time. Mm. And then I was think, uh, thinking, well, you know, is, is that really like an immoral thing to do today to be whistling? Mm. 
with the world the way it is. I mean, what would someone think of me if, if you know, I mean, like if you're watching this, this terrible tragedy and you start whistling, it seems like, you know, there's Sometimes a certain that's all you can do. kind of obscenity to that. Maybe. I think you can gladden the heart of the people around you. <laughs> yeah. I do. I imagine someone walking down the street whistling. What would you think of them? Or, I would know. think, wow, they're happy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. and, you would have, and then you would give others the occasion for empathetic joy. Yeah. I, I asked Flint one time, I, I said to Flint one time, you know, my personal koan is, is it possible to be happy if a single other person is unhappy? Mm. And so what's not. the answer? <laughs> it's, what? <laughs> the koan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, this, is, this is what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that's the question, right? And there was that nice story about the Dalai Lama where he would he, he was visiting a hospital or something and at, with every person he was very sad. And then he came out and someone told a joke and he started laughing. So, so certainly he can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Part of what we can do is bring joy to people in difficult circumstances like we're in right now. So that's a in my way, way of thinking anyway, um, that's a, uh, a beneficence. So, uh, so that people can be heartened in the midst of trouble and struggle. And so that they can have courage and so that they can have patience and so that they can have stamina. And they can only do that if we encourage and hearten each other. So so that's my uh, my understanding is it's our duty to be happy because if you were in a war-torn country let's say and you could have a little uh, let's say a little view a little zoom view maybe of the life that you are living right now wouldn't you be incensed if that person wasn't happy wouldn't you be infuriated that someone could have all that you have and still be unhappy. So that's how I think about it sometimes. Is that it's our responsibility to appreciate what is all around us. And yeah, and sometimes we have that thought about kids, our kids, you know, yeah. where, where they they have everything that they could possibly want, and they're, and they're still unhappy. Yeah. 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 But I want three cookies. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's important. I think it's important to remember our responsibility through our equanimity um, and through our uh, empathetic joy to, to share what joy there is in the world. It's not all unhappiness. There's lots of trouble in the world, but there has always been a lot of trouble in the world. And we think our trouble is more important than the other troubles that have happened in the world, I think. Uh, but I think um, what we have to do is recognize our duty, our responsibility as bodhisattvas. To, you, you had mentioned a few weeks ago sutta as opposed to dukkha, the other side. Is that, am sukha. I saying it wrong? Sukha. Sukha. Sukha, yeah. And, and it was, so I started, 
reading about that. That was very interesting. We don't talk about that very much. No. No. But we, those we are the think that there is only dukkha because there is dukkha. Well, because it catches our attention. It, it's the focus of our attention. Um, and partly because we're hardwired for negativity. You know, like we're hardwired to look for what's going wrong. Um, so uh, that's our, that's our um, tendency, our biological tendency, because of course our, it has some survival value. So we feel attached to that, but it's our responsibility. I think of it as a moral responsibility to appreciate all the good and to celebrate all the good that we're experiencing and that we see in the world. That's the ethical responsibility, not to be sad because there are sad things happening. Sandra, did you have something? Yes, I really thank you. When you're saying about the responsibility to be happy, that really remind me that when you go to, you know, the, this little village in Peru, in Mexico, the children, they don't have, sometimes where the conditions are very poor and they always smiling, they always laughing. And yeah. the people, the village are always very happy and they just have, they don't have just, not even the basic things. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have a genius for making ourselves unhappy and twisting ourselves in knots about it, you know. Um, I mean, that's, uh, it's really unfortunate cultural tendency. It's, it's fueled by a lot of dissatisfaction. Things are not the way I want them to be. I understand the, the Burmese are some of the happiest people in the world and also some of the poorest. Well, yes, according to GDP, and, and, and there's a big argument uh, in, uh, Peter Hershock talks about this, how we base everything on GDP and not on uh, the actual ways that people live. So people who live an agrarian lifestyle, by definition, don't have, they don't have profit. They're, you know, they're growing crops and uh, raising livestock. And, uh, and so they don't, they're not participating in the world of commerce. So they're considered to be very poor but their lives compared to our lives are quite rich. And he talked about in the, the Burmese have like three story houses and, um, and live happily with, in multi-generational homes, you know? Um, so there's a lot of ways that we have of accounting for uh, what, what success is as a culture uh, that, are, that are not really reflective of conditions on the ground. So that's what Sandra is pointing to, that people can have very little and still be joyful. Anne had her hand up a long time ago. I don't know if oh, she yeah, still yeah. wants to. Oh. Well, I was uh, in answer to Kim's question about whistling and whether it was moral to whistle. <laughs> <laughs> given today, the, today. Given yeah. the state of the world. Given the state of the world. I would say when you feel like crying, if you stop yourself from crying, that would be the same thing as stopping yourself from whistling. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a feeling. It comes, it goes. To feel like one is better than the other. Yeah, seems like it's not really honoring what's going on. Yeah, these are all expressions of life. Real expressions of life. And so that free expression of life, I mean, it wants, life wants to find a channel. It wants to find its expression and your unique expression is it. So 
this is our challenge, of course, to get out of the way of it. That's why the hindrances are important, you know, because our challenge is to get out of the way of the free expression of the life force that we are, um, let's say, the stewards of. Yeah. So, well, anyway, I think we're coming close to the end of our time and we should probably do our service.